Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. On September 8th, my co-founder at AltsDB, Jimmy Atkinson, hosted Justin Amos, National Sales Manager and 1031 Specialist for JTC Americas, to present a live one-hour webinar for financial advisors. The webinar detailed best practices for investors who are completing a 1031 exchange and showed how a 1031 transaction can be used as a powerful tax planning tool. This podcast episode is an audio version of the webinar, and I think the content is tremendously valuable for any real estate investor. Enjoy. Welcome to today's AltDB webinar, Best Practices to Complete a 1031 Exchange. I'm Jimmy Atkinson, co-founder at AltDB. Today's webinar is sponsored by JTC Americas, and our presenter today is Justin Amos, 1031 Specialist, at JTC Americas. And Justin comes to us today from San Jose, California. Justin, welcome to you. And we're going to get to you and your presentation momentarily. Uh, Well, with that said, Justin, let's talk 1031 exchanges and uh, JTC Americas. You guys uh, provide great services for the 1031 exchange industry. Um, If if you're ready with your presentation, please take it away. Thank you, Jimmy, again for having and uh, AltsDB uh, hosting JTC Americas and our 1031 Exchange Education here today. Just making sure I can click through. So a brief overview, just a quick agenda of what we're going to be covering today. I'll do a brief overview of JTC Americas. Uh, we'll, get in, we'll get into the uh, basics of 1031 exchanges. We'll go over the five steps to a successful exchange, uh, considerations for why you should do a 1031 exchange and how the transaction is facilitated. The different types of the different types of exchanges, uh, and don't worry, uh, as Jimmy mentioned, we'll, we won't be rounding out with a test. Uh, we'll be actually rounding out this presentation with uh, a Q and A. So, uh, looking forward to those questions as they come up during out the presentation. So, a brief overview of JTC Americas. JTC Americas was founded on this principle that certain investment programs, while well intentioned, like ten thirty one exchanges lack the regulations or compliance guidelines, and therefore had failed to achieve its potential by falling victim to either fraud or mismanagement. So using our Silicon Valley background, we developed a purpose-built technological platform to help reduce fraud and abuse, streamline the administrative requirements of these specialty types of transactions like 1031 exchanges, and ultimately help them do the good they were intended to do. So for fund managers or investors, this means providing solutions that embed security, transparency, and regulatory compliance through each step of the investment lifecycle. Through our 17 plus years of leadership, we defined industry best practices in each of the markets we serve. From 1031 exchanges servicing 825 billion as a QI to EB5 investments and the 650 plus projects and 20 billion in capital flowing through our platform. And today we continue to make great strides in both the private equity space and most recently the Opportunity Zone program where we have over 120 funds driving capital to the underdeveloped communities. Two years ago, JTC Americas, uh, then formerly NES Financial, was acquired by a firm out of the Channel Islands uh, called JTC Group. JTC is an award-winning provider of fund, corporate, and private client services 
was founded in 1987, and the company employs over 1,300 people across its 23 global offices and is a trusted administrator for assets over 200 billion. The company has recorded 34 consecutive years of revenue and profit growth and is listed on the London Stock Exchange. JTC Americas is the coming together of two fun powerhouses, two award-winning customer-driven platforms with high cultural values, high-caliber employees, and unmatched fund administration expertise. We both champion uh, best practices, leveraging technology for transparency, ultimately so we can leave a positive mark on the communities we service worldwide. And now let's get into the reason why you're here today to discuss a little bit about uh, 1031 exchanges. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the 1031 exchange transaction, what is a 1031 exchange? So simply put, it's a method of deferring capital gains tax on the sale of a property held for business or investment use. Uh, no, no personal property or uh, or there may be a restriction on vacation homes. Throughout this presentation, you'll hear me say business or investment use. And that's a key factor when looking to uh, enter into a 1031 exchange transaction as it can't be used for a personal property. Now, there are some different variations such as uh, maybe living in a unit of a multifamily uh, complex or uh, or hotel or living in a duplex where those uh, those could be put into a 1031 exchange, but for most cases, the property needs to be held for a business or investment use. Another thing to note here as well is that no gain or loss is recognized in a 1031 exchange. A 1031 exchange is deferring those gains that you've realized from this taxable event until uh, a later notice. And those and that later notice would be maybe a, at a change of titling uh, or a selling of that property uh, down the line. So, what can cannot be exchanged? Or, um, so stocks and bonds close to actions. So re as uh, as recently as the 2017 with the tax jobs and cuts acts, the personal property was eliminated uh, from to being 1031 exchange qualifiable. So on these notes, property held for primary sale. So you can't use properties uh, that are flipped is a good point to note here as well. Securities, certificates of trust or beneficial interest. Now we'll go, there are some uh, interest in trust, which is known as a DST. Um, which you can learn a little bit more uh, uh, with AltsDB. They cover a great subject on that subject matter. Uh, but those, those are the only ones that would be qualifiable for a 1031 exchange. Interest in a partnership, we'll go over that a little bit later on how uh, that can be 1031 exchange uh, usable, but not directly from an interest in a partnership. So ultimately, who can benefit from a 1031 exchange? Now, as long, uh, any U.S. paying taxpayer, whether it be an individual, a partnership, a corporation, an LLC, or REIT, can all benefit from using a 1031 exchange. Now, recently from the, uh, the statistics are approved from EY and the FEA, most of the people who do benefit uh, from a 1031 exchange are those individuals. But we do see large corporations using this um, tax deferral tool that's been in practice for well now over 100 years. It was first started in 1921. So now in 2022, people are still leveraging the benefits of using a 1031 exchange. You can even actually do a 1031 exchange with foreign property. And we'll go over uh, a little bit uh, how that you can facilitate that uh, later in the presentation. So why do a 1031 exchange? Well, for one, um, it's a method of, of deferring those capital gains taxes that would have been assessed at the time of the sale of the real estate asset. Um, it's also a deferral. It's an interest-free free loan from the government. You're taking those proceeds that you're, you were making from the sale and transferring them over into a property or properties to complete the exchange. 
tax amounts nowadays can exceed somewhere to 20 to 30 and even greater, 35%, 37%. Um, and, and that might, depending on people's uh, financial situation at the time, that could be that could be breaking the bank uh, and, and ultimately would maybe want to defer those until a later point, uh, maybe with a change of um, uh, government who, who's leading the, the, in the presidency so they can change the, 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 the capital gains rate. So things definitely uh, come into factor, but most importantly, always be consulting your CPA or uh, financial professionals to discuss uh, why you should go again to enter into enter a temporary exchange. Make sure you have a, a, a good team around you, whether it be your real estate attorney, your CPA, and almost obviously the qualified intermediary, our role uh, that's integral to, to complete the transaction itself. And the, those tax savings uh, in, a, in the next slide will show over a, a visual breakdown of what the difference of those taxes can be into taking those proceeds into a new transaction. So higher purchasing power for buying a new property. Uh, we'll go over that in the next slide as well. You can use it to diversify. So going from maybe one asset to multiple assets, to, uh, or uh, maybe you have a portfolio and you're combining all those into one large asset. So definitely many reasons for why to do a 1031 exchange. Like I said, most importantly, uh, just be consulting your respective advisors uh, before moving forward with the transaction as this is um, a taxable event. So as promised, here is the visual representation of what uh, someone who decided to take the proceeds out uh, or just take the, the cash from the transaction. Uh, maybe they were looking to, to purchase a property. And one of the most things that we come we come across as a qualified intermediary and with our clients is they, they weren't educated or they didn't know that this was available out to them. And that's the most common um answer that we hear from a lot of our clients is that they, you know, they're, they're very happy that they were able to, to learn about this powerful tool um, and then actually save themselves some taxes. So the, the view on the left used the property from a sale. They paid the taxes of about 875,000. So they, with the, at the end of it, they minus probably some closing costs. They're taking about $1.6 million um, to the, to the table versus someone who put their money into the exchange. They had, don't, they have zero basis, so they have, and they're deferring those taxes. Now they're bringing $2.5 million. Now, I don't know about you and the differences of that. 1.6 versus $2.5 million could be a difference of someone purchasing their ultimate uh, dream investment, uh, the ability to purchase multiple properties that they were looking to do. Um, so that's definitely, as you know, whether you're a real estate agent, a, a CPA, or a real estate attorney, um, and, and you're, you're advising your clients, this is definitely something that you want to bring up, at least bring to their attention whether they want to move forward with it or not um, that, you know, that's ultimately their decision, but at least give them the, the, the decision ultimately to, to have this at, in, in their disposal. So what are the five steps to a successful exchange? So first and foremost, old and new properties are held for business or investment use. As I as promised earlier in the presentation, you're going to hear me say that a lot, that the property must be held for business or investment use properties. It cannot be used with a, a personal property. Again, there's some variations as I highlighted with like a duplex or maybe they're living, it's a living unit of one of the multifamily uh, um, complexes. In those cases, the CPA would carve out those sections as uh, a personal property. So those proceeds would not be put into the exchange and the remainder could be. Uh, but for most cases, and uh, that are people who are facilitating this transaction are holding this property for business or investment use. One of the most common misconceptions when it comes to uh, a 1031 exchange is that you have to match. Uh, you hear the term like kind exchange and um, people think 
you know, if I'm selling a, a condo that I have to then purchase a, a condo, as long as it's real estate or real estate. And again, uh, for bit, the property was held for business or investment use, it'll qualify. So which means you could um, sell a, a vac as an example here on the slide, the, uh, someone uh, purchased vacant land, maybe they were looking to develop on it uh, and, you know, have held it for a couple of years. The, the land is appreciated, especially now the last few years um, we've seen uh, real estate appreciation across all asset class types uh, to an astronomical amount. They sell and now instead of having to develop anymore, they purchase a few single family homes and they complete their 1031 exchange. Holding period, that's a, another common question that we receive, uh, you know, as a qualified intermediary, and I'm sure you as a CPA and real estate attorney. Now, there is no direct line in the sand for how long someone can hold, uh, should hold a real estate property, unless, again, it's a, a, a vacation home, which we'll go over on the next slide. Um, one, of the, one of the examples that I use with clients is this, you know, let's say they purchased a property, you know, six months ago, uh, again, with the intent of holding it uh, for business or investment use. Um, they held, they rented it out for you know six months, so they show a track record of uh, that it was being held for investment. And then someone knocks on their door, and you know provides them with a Godfather offer, you know something that they can't they can't simply turn down. Now the IRS is not going to say that you can't you can't do a ten thirty one exchange because you didn't you didn't hold it for a certain period of time. Again, they they look at what's called the intent of what was of the property at the time of the purchase. So in this point, again, they show they show a track record of intent holding it for business use property, and then they can put that property to exchange uh, and move on forward. And then two-year holding period is imposed if it is a related party. Related party uh, comes into the terms of whether it was for a family, uh, maybe a cousin, or a, a direct lineage to you or a direct arm's length to you uh, for the property. And then again, if you were, uh, and if this is the situation, you selling the property, you, the person selling or buying then has to also do a 1031 exchange as well if it is a related party. Oops. Um, so for, for vacation homes, as I as promised, uh, the property has to be held for at least 24 months uh, period prior to disposing in a 1031 exchange. So two years, you've had to hold that property as a vacation home or investment uh, before you are disposing it uh, 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 into a 1031 exchange. Now, for each of those 12 months periods, a property must be rented out at the fair market value for at least 14 days to a non-related party. I was just covered in the previous slide. Related party, it can't be family members. So it has to be completely someone, uh, third party to you, could be a friend te uh, technically. Um, so as long as it's not directly family members and rented at a fair market value, so you can't cut them a discount, unfortunately. Um, and then most importantly here, uh, a thing to note, which is, uh, oftentimes, uh, a, a reason why people decide not to do uh, a vacation home with a 1031 exchange because maybe they want to occupy it a little bit longer than those 14 days that is highlighted here on the slide or 10% of the, the time that it's rented out for the year. Um, people sometimes want to use it for monthly, you know, monthly rentals or, or months at a time, maybe in the summer or winter, depending on you know, where the asset is, is held uh, throughout the United States. And so often at that time is the um, what breaks it down from moving into a vacation home. Um, at, the IRS would deem that as a primary residence and at that time. So when you had bought the investment or did a 1031 exchange and completed the transaction, that would then convert from an investment to a primary residence. And those capital gains that you did defer with the transaction would become due. And again, consult uh, before making any decisions uh, as such, consult your CPA uh, so that you know uh, what um, tax that you would be uh, due at that time. 
So number two, what is uh, to, for a successful exchange? It's uh, uh, determining that is like kind, as we discussed on the previous slide. Like kind means uh, that as long as it is real estate to real estate, and again, held for business or investment use, uh, it'll qualify within a 1031 exchange. Another requirement is to determine that it is like kind. Uh, the replacement property must be equal to uh, or greater than uh, the relinquished property. Um, so that means the, the value of the property must be, uh, if let's say, for example, the client had sold uh, a property for 500,000, the, the replacement property must be equal to, uh, equal to in value of 500,000 or more to complete the 1031 exchange. Again, uh, as promised with the domestic to domestic or foreign to foreign, uh, this this is which means if the property was sold here in anywhere of the, uh, the United States or any of the 50 states, you can then reinvest those proceeds to any uh, any of which in the uh, into the United States. If the property was held overseas, um, then you unfortunately cannot bring those proceeds back here into the states, but you can reinvest anywhere else in the world to complete a 1031 exchange. Some QIs, uh, you know, sometimes it is a little bit complicated to facilitate that transactions different uh, since it is a U.S. tax uh, tax code. Some countries aren't familiar with uh, the processes uh, to facilitate a 1031 exchange. So it's definitely important to be working with a qualified intermediary uh, who's knowledgeable and has the capabilities to, to, to ensure that the transaction goes smooth, uh, smoothly. The replacement property must be identified uh, within the 45 calendar days or the identification period. We'll go over a little bit more uh, later in the presentation what those rules and, and the timelines uh, 180 days is the full timeline from a 1031 exchange that, that the ticking time clock starts at the time uh, proceeds have been transferred, uh, the sale of the transaction has started and funds have then hit the third party escrow account established by the qualified intermediary. Um, there are no ex extensions from this timeline. No people at Asked that all the time, what if I didn't identify within the 45 days or what happens if I can't complete a purchase within 180 days? Unfortunately, uh, there are no extensions to be done unless there are, um, you know, presidentially declared disaster. So I, in 2020, I think there was a, a few hurricanes or that, that had happened. Uh, or and, and in those cases, uh, the IRS comes out and has a ruling stating that they are an extension of the both 45 and 180 days. So that way, uh, people can complete the transaction, or maybe uh, the the exchanger can no longer physically purchase the asset itself as it is burned down, or or something extreme to, as that. Which again, which is why it's most importantly to have backups uh, in your identification, and in, in, in case those things do happen. And again, we'll cover that a little bit later in the presentation. So. And number three, to, to for the steps of a successful exchange, it has to be viewed as an exchange. The process cannot be just considered as uh, an exchange rather than a sale and a purchase. So uh, the in the in the picture that we described earlier versus the sale and an exchange, um, the person who took the proceeds at the time of the closing, which is I can't stress enough, it's important to get the qualified intermediary, our role as JCT, JTC Americas, uh, involved in as early as possible when the transaction. So maybe when you're are thinking about listing, or I definitely at least when you have a, a contract executed, that way the qualified intermediary can get their the, their third party escrow account set up and have all the parameters and, and be communicating with all the parties involved. So that way, at the time of closing, the funds are wired directly to that account rather than the personal's bank account. If for some reason those funds are um, the the client does have. A constructive receipt, the exchanger has constructive receipt of those proceeds, that will be considered a failed exchange and they can no longer uh, proceed forward with the 1031 exchange. So I can't stress that enough. Definitely get 
uh, be having these conversations earlier from a tax uh, tax planning standpoint, but also also uh, from a 1031 exchange point, it could it be the difference of having to pay hundreds and thousands in taxes, uh, and we don't want to have that happen. Um, these are some of the ways that uh, JTC, as we uh, as our qualified intermediate, what we provide as our safe harbor to our clients. As I mentioned, the integral role to complete a 1031 exchange is the qualified intermediary, the the, the middle place between the ultimate se uh, the selling of the property and the ultimate purchase of the replacement property or properties to complete the transaction. Now, another level we add uh, into our security for our clients is the escrow agents, which restricts the taxpayer from having control of those funds throughout the exchange. Now, every qualified intermediary should have that uh, in place. But again, but there is, are no regulations uh, that are in, defined what are industry best practices for completing the transaction itself. Now, so a few queries on what's used in exchange. One of the things I'd like to cover here uh, is what if the taxpayer wants to take cash? Because uh, that is a, a pretty common uh, question that we do receive from our, from our clients and exchangers. Uh, that is something that can be done. So throughout this presentation, uh, uh, what you'll see on the slide deck and what you'll hear from me in speaking is with the assumption that the goal is to, to fully defer those capital gains. Um, that is the ultimate goal of a 1031 exchange transaction. So. But in a case where maybe clients want to take some cash out at, pro, uh, at the time of closing, maybe they want to pay off some debts or uh, they want to have some extra savings instead of putting all into an, an exchange, just know that it can be done and it's what's considered a partial exchange uh, and just only those portion of those proceeds left out of the transaction would be taxed at the respectable rate. And again, um, you know, always consult with your, your tax advisor to understand uh, what that um, you know, tax hit would be. So taxpayer continuity. So we, uh, another common question that we receive, and this is what we'll discuss when it comes to the um, interest in, a, in an LLC or interest in a partnership for why those uh, it cannot move forward. So taxpayer continuity means that the title holder does not matter, but the taxpayer. So the ultimate taxpayer for the entity, whether it be an LLC, an individual, a REIT, a corporation, will be the ultimate exchanger uh, in the transaction. And most importantly, that person doing the selling has to be the same entity doing the buying. So in the case of uh, um, a partnership, for example, if the LLC is the, the ultimate taxpayer, it has to be uh, the, the same per uh, entity doing the purchasing. So uh, it's very common, and we see this a lot, uh, single member limited liability company. So single member LLC is used for um, as a pass-through entity, so to, to defer liability uh, from the ultimate individual, but ultimately it's a, it's a pass-through entity, so the individual itself would be the, the, the exchanger in the case uh, to complete the transaction. Um, and another example of a disregarded entity is a benefit, beneficial interest in a land trust. And step five, so the last and, and maybe one of the most, most important rules to com uh, completing the 1031 exchanges I covered earlier uh, in, on the like-kind portion is that the fair market value of the price, uh, price property must be equal to or greater in value of the relinquished property. Again, that example of 500,000 uh, was, was sold as the, as the selling contract must be then uh, equated into one or multiple properties to complete the exchange. As uh, highlighted previously, all net proceeds, this is with the assumption that the goal is to fully defer the capital gains, must be put into the third-party escrow account set up by the qualified intermediary and used to acquire the replacement property or properties uh, to complete the transaction. 
Now, not, not, it's not just the proceeds that need to be met. If there's any debt associated with the transaction as well, must be carried over or uh, outside money must be put into the exchange. So again, using that example of 500,000 now, let's say there's 200,000 of debt on the property. So 300,000 of uh, minus closing costs uh, and, exchange, uh, and exchange administration fees will be put into that third party escrow account. Now it's a common thing that people think, oh, I only have to reinvest that 300,000. The IRS uh, uh, unfortunately doesn't want to, to you to come out on top. So there would have to be new debt carried over into that property. You can always take on some more debt. So whether it's your, uh, you're taking on the exact 200,000 amount or 300,000, if you're looking to purchase a, a leverage up into a higher and better property, uh, will always uh, will, will, will qualify and meet the, the expectation of completing the 1031 exchange. Again, I just covered that uh, whether you can over mortgage for the replacement property. So this is, a, again, a quick query on how that can happen. So if you did have 300,000, again, that threshold was 500,000 you needed to meet in uh, the replacement property or properties. You, you take out 300,000, let's say, uh, in debt. So now you're at that 600,000. So now you're over that 500,000 and you met your 200,000 in debt that you needed to replace. And now you've completed, you've purchased that replacement property. Everything is all good. And then the transaction is complete. Now, uh, when it comes to refinancing or selling uh, prior or after the transaction, uh, we always recommend our clients to do uh, to complete the uh, refinancing once the uh, 1031 exchange transaction is completed. If you were to refinance prior to entering a 1031 exchange, that would be considered uh, debt that is added onto the property. And so that would be something that you do need to carry forward as highlighting uh, here on these slides. Um, to go forward in the transaction. So always it's best to complete the transaction, refinance, and now you have the new debt and you're focusing on it. And it's not um, something to worry about when you're completing the exchange itself. So what are some considerations for uh, entering a 1031 exchange before? Again, first and foremost, always be consulting with uh, you know, uh, the appropriate team members, whether it be a CPA, again, this is a really highly specialized transaction, though it has been in uh, practice for, you know, 101 years now, uh, it is still specialized and not every qualified intermediary, uh, CPA or real estate attorney uh, is familiar with certain transactions. So definitely having the, the, the appropriate team members involved uh, and at your side to make sure, ensure that this transaction does go smoothly uh, is important. Um, first and foremost, obviously, with the qualified intermediary being an integral part of the transaction, selecting a qualified intermediary is important. It is still an un unre unregulated industry. Um, so there aren't, or as I uh, mentioned previously, that there aren't specific guidelines other than that the qualified intermediary has to be a complete third party to the ultimate seller. So that means it could technically be your neighbor, that could technically be someone, uh, your friend, putting funds into their account. So that, but uh, obviously, if you're you, you're putting it into your friend's account, how much do you trust your friend? Do they have all the protocols in place? Do they know what a 1031 exchange is? And these are just some examples of um, the cases again years ago, but where fraud and abuse, where qualified intermediaries were mishandling people's funds, commingling the proceeds, um, and didn't have the proper places in place. And as you can see, millions and millions of dollars were lost. So definitely selecting a qualified intermediary that's knowledgeable from an extra expertise standpoint, uh, but obviously for the protection of your funds, as this this could be the livelihoods of some uh, of, of these exchangers. So in order to do due diligence, your QI should uh, require an audit on policies and procedures. We run ourselves through a third party audit every single year uh, to make sure that our processes and uh, policies and procedures are, are compliant uh, and that we're doing what we're saying that we're doing. Uh, so security device, so an escrow agent or trustee, so ensure that 
that the money can't be uh, moved without a uh, signature approval, of both um, the escrow agent and as well as the client. So again, that dual control proceeds are held and never commingled. So each of our exchanges that have their individual uh, exchange account tied to their exchange is never lumped into a trust account or, or a bank account of the qualified intermediary. And it's not tied by us, again, tying it to the taxpayer. And again, don't just rely on some insurance policies, though. You know, we do have liabilities and errors and emissions inserts to cover um, the values of um, all of our exchanges. But again, there should be other uh, policies in place to protect, uh, ultimately, what could be your livelihood. So the identification rules and requirements. So the, those first 45 days, which becomes the most um, time crunch, you know, I would say the, the most difficult part when completing a 1031 exchange is the timing. So how many properties can a taxpayer? So making that 40, first 45 days go smoothly for your client. Again, I would say the day zero uh, and day one starts at the time the proceeds and the sale is uh, completed. But I would say day zero is what's going to ultimately help. So the, the legwork you can do ahead of time prior to the ultimate sale and entering in those 40, first 45 days, as you can imagine, a month and a half to find a uh, replacement property or properties to complete the transaction can happen pretty quickly. But the IRS has given us different ways uh, for our exchanges to identify. The first and most commonly used rule is the three property or standard rule, where it doesn't matter that uh, the asset class type or the value of the fair market value of the property, you get three slots uh, for identification. And you can put that in as a, a physical piece of real estate, a triple net property, maybe a DST uh, to, to fill up the value. Again, we do recommend the client or the exchanger use all three slots because after those first 45 days, whatever is on the list and is provided to the qualified intermediary uh, for, for purchase to complete the transaction will be set in stone. So it's very important uh, that you feel confident about um, the, the, the properties that you're putting on the, on the list and you're not just looking to uh, hope, uh, hope putting something on there and hoping that it sticks. And I'll go over why um, when it comes to when you receive the funds a little bit uh, a little bit later. So maybe now the three, three the standard three rules now you're, uh, isn't um, you know isn't meeting what you're looking for as an exchanger. So maybe you want a little bit more cushion to provide more properties than that. So the IRS gave us the second uh, rule in the 200% rule or the two times value rule. So again, using the the simple figures that we used an example earlier, that 500,000 threshold now you can identify properties up to a million dollars, whether that's you know, 10 properties at 100,000, or maybe five properties at 200,000. However, it shakes up, uh, as long as it doesn't amount, uh, amass that 200% uh, rule, that million dollar threshold, um, you can list it on the property uh, as a list on the identification uh, list, again, to provide it to, to the exchanger. And the last rule, the, and maybe not the most commonly used rule, is the 95% rule. And so this is, if it's needs to be more than a three property rule and it doesn't fit within the 200% rule as well. Now you have the 95% exemption rule and this uh, which indicates that you the, the exchanger then has to close on 95% of the properties that are put on the list for identification. So uh, as you can imagine, that could be, uh, especially in a, in a complex real estate market, that could be difficult to accomplish as, in addition to maybe not having the pro all the proceeds um, available to actually do, do so as well. Um, so we really do see most of our exchanges falling within that 200 or uh, three property rule. But again, large commercial real estate companies, or maybe you're diversifying your portfolio across different uh, DSTs, as an example, like Delaware Statutory Trust Investments, that 95% rule uh, will come into play. And so how does a, and Sunai asked me, Justin, how does a taxpayer identify 
um, first and foremost in writing or uh, we are in the, uh, you know, the way of uh, how we operate in the 21st century. So that we, you can also be, doesn't have to be physical writing. It'd be, be, be through email or form that the qualified intermediaries provide you uh, or a worksheet uh, is how we do it uh, here at JTC Americas. Uh, it, it must be unambiguously described. So it can't just be, I'm looking to invest somewhere in California. It has to be 123 Main Street, uh, San Jose, California, 95126. Uh, or uh, the point something, 0. 0.4256 uh, interest in uh, 123 Main Street, a DST using it as an example uh, as of how, but it must most importantly be unambiguously described and has to be signed by the taxpayer and sent to the, uh, the qualifying intermediate within that 45 days. Uh, if it, again, if it, we don't receive the, that number on the midnight, so 1159.59 on the midnight of the 45th day, uh, that would be considered a failed exchange. And then go over, as I promised, uh, what happens if the taxpayer doesn't submit the ID form? Uh, the QI can then, if there is an executed contract within and signed, so fully executed within the first 45 days, the qualified intermediary can use that as a form of identification to complete the exchange. Um, another query here, does the taxpayer have to complete the ID form for the property within the ID period? Of course, that does have to be completed. Otherwise, it would be considered a failed exchange. Um, and again, going on, feeling confident about what you're um, moving forward with in a 1031 exchange. Uh, if you don't identify, so again, on day 46, uh, to be considered a failed exchange, the exchanger would then have would be able to receive the funds um, because they went, we didn't receive a form. There's no properties on the list. Funds are returned on day 46. If there is, if we do receive a form, we're past the 46 day. Funds can't be returned until day 181. The reason being because the IRS again, we're supposed to as a qualified intermediate, we're supposed to be completely segregated, uh, not related to the exchanger, and they can't have constructive receipt of the funds. If we were just just to dispose of those phones at any at any point without the throughout the transaction, the IRS can deem uh, that the client had constructive history at, at, at the entire time. And as a qualified intermediary, that would also look into our business practices and again and potentially put all the exchanges that we've ever facilitated at risk. And so, both as an exchanger and as a qualified intermediary, um, it's important to make those decisions. And why uh, either at day forty six or one eighty one, those funds uh, would be returned. So as promised, the partnership discussion. So as, as we highlighted earlier in the presentation, partnerships may use a uh, section 1031 exchange, but partners may not use uh, a, a 1031 exchange. And the reason being, it has to do uh, with the taxpayer continuity because the LLC is the ultimate taxpayer uh, in a 1031 exchange. So it has to be the same entity doing uh, the purchasing of the replacement property. Uh, and as, as you see on the slide here, partners are viewed as owning an indirect ownership interest in the property, so i.e. owning partnership interest, and those cannot be done in a 1031 exchange. But that doesn't rule out that it can't be facilitated or there isn't um, a way to have this, uh, the interest, as, as you can imagine, when it comes to uh, a selling or a taxable event, everyone, within, especially within a partnership, may have their own individual interest, and maybe some want to do a 1031 exchange and some do not. So how do we accomplish this? Well, well first and foremost, advanced tax planning. So again, when before uh, if the group is thinking about selling, consult, again, consulting the CPA and figuring out ways to accomplish this transaction. And the way to accomplish that based on uh, 2000 tax fair disclosure rules is what's called a drop and swap. So again, advanced tax planning is done for this. Um, this isn't something that you want to leave to the last minute or right down before the sale. It is 
uh, is considered to be a little bit uh, risky when it comes to, but it is very commonly uh, done and facilitated uh, within the 1031 exchange guidelines. And so essentially what the drop and swap does is those membership, those partnership interest, ones that are maybe wanting to do a 1031 exchange or the instance where a couple members want to just cash out and other members want to move forward in the partnership, those members would drop out. So they're meant their interests. So they would drop into a tenant, tenant in common uh, ownership indirectly into the real estate. So in, instead of, they would be their own individual taxpayers. So instead of the LLC now being the taxpayer, each of them would have uh, their own direct ownership for the same uh, membership interest that they had in the in the partnership. Now is just now direct ownership into the real estate. And then because they are their own taxpayers and it is same taxpayer continuity, they, they have their own decision making and they can decide either to cash out or move forward in a 1031 exchange. Again, do this with with some advanced tax planning. This is uh, always be consulting your uh, either real estate attorneys or, or real estate professionals about moving forward with this type of a transaction as uh, it, it does come with some uh, potential auditing risks. Some other exchange issues uh, doesn't really come up too um, frequently, but you know there are asked where there's an installment sale, um, and so where those payments for uh, real estate properties broken up over typically several years, very rarely is it done over a few months. And again, there are, as as you can imagine, if what since it's done over several years. It doesn't fall within those 180-day timeline, so it's very it's, it's not typically involved in a 1031 exchange. But when it does uh, does happen, the first thing to note here is that the initial closing of the transfer date, so that initial payment does start uh, the exchange timeline, and whether it's uh, paid throughout the uh, the hundred uh, the six-month window or not, uh, will then make make the decision for why you would want to move forward in exchange or or not. Let's go with that. Um, some other exchange issues. Uh, so a deed in lieu. Uh, so this will be the case where a lender accepts a deed to relieve the debt obligation. So there may be uh, a, gain, a taxable gain event. So the, the taxless basis and uh, the debt loan relief. Um, so uh, putting the exchange into the exchange transaction on or before the deed in lieu process. So definitely get, if you are thinking about doing this, uh, definitely uh, be consulting with a qualified intermediary. And again, real estate professionals about moving forward with this transaction. Uh, and again, so the always the debt relief portion is, will be that threshold of what you would need to be replaced uh, in a replacement property to complete the transaction itself. So we're going right, right on time here. So going over to the different types of exchanges. So we've gone over the considerations for why to do it at 1031 exchange, some of the 1031 exchange basics, and now the five steps to completing a successful exchange. So let's go over the different types of exchanges that uh, a client may think about doing or are looking to complete uh, with you as an advisor or a real estate professional. The most commonly used one is the forward exchange. And the reason why it's the most commonly used is for the ease of versatility and ease and speed of implementation. And outside the, the role of the qualified intermediate, which is the integral part to complete the transaction, it really does operate as you're selling and then buying uh, a real estate property, which you know most people um, are looking to, to do and complete uh, anyways when they do sell their property, unless they're looking to take those proceeds. And so for our visual learners, this is what the, uh, the, the wheel of the transaction looks like. Um, so first and foremost, a qualifying intermediary would engage the exchanger uh, with an exchange agreement. We'll take assignment of the sales contract. We'll review that. We'll uh, gather the appropriate uh, know your customer information, anti-money laundering information, and opening up a third-party escrow account at our, one of our, our partner banks. Once those accounts are set up, our dedicated exchange uh, expert managing the exchanger's transaction would 
uh, communicate with uh, the title company or the closing agent, provide them with the wiring instructions. At the time of closing, the exchanger would uh, just uh, disperse of the relinquished property to the buyer. The proceeds would go into that account, that third-party escrow account that we had set up, thus starting the exchange transaction. And again, so highlighting the, the full scope of the 1031 exchange transactions, so those key dates here. So day one are, uh, starts at the selling of the existing property. So on the previous slide highlighting, that's we'll start the day one of the transaction. Those first 45 days become the identification phase. Uh, so this is where you'll be consulting with your real estate agents uh, to find suitable replacement properties that meet your investment goals. And the full exchange timeline is 180 days. Uh, but I do recommend to be thinking about uh, do, um, day zero is what I like, I like to say is the most important part of a 1031 exchange is, is the planning phase. It'll make those first 45 days go a lot smoother. And again, it'll be able to wrap your mind around how to complete the transaction, whether you're familiar uh, with the 1031 exchange process or, or an experienced uh, you know, real estate professional. Um, the, the having timing is tends to be the most difficult part in completing an exchange. So the more that you can uh, legwork you can do pr previously, the smoother the transaction will go. And now, so step two again um, to to show the the completion of the transaction. Once again, the qualified intermediary, our role in the transaction, we would engage the exchanger uh, with an exchange agreement, uh, take assignment at this time uh, of the uh, the purchasing contract. Um, then once we uh, uh, verify the disbursement form, so whether it's earnest money or the full disbursement for the purchase of the replacement property, um, we will then uh, verify that form with the client, uh, do a callback, and then uh, communicate with our partner bank to distribute those funds. The funds would then be used to purchase the, the seller's property. The property goes over to the exchanger, thus completing the 1031 exchange transaction. If multiple properties are being purchased uh, to complete the transaction, um, this process is a rinse and repeat until all funds are, are dispersed out of the third-party escrow account. Now, uh, the, uh, a, a commonly used exchange, and as the name might allude to, the reverse exchange uh, basically highlights um, the, the forward exchange done in reverse order. A thing to note here that I, I like to know with our clients and exchanges, there will always be a forward component to a reverse exchange transaction as even though you are typically the most commonly used one uh, is the buy first and sell later. So this may be advantageous to some exchangers, um, but um, because you, you are eliminating part the, the, the identifying part because you are purchasing the replacement property first and then looking to sell uh, the relinquished property later. But there are a lot, a lot more moving parts that are involved with completing this transaction, which we'll uh, go over here in a few moments. So again, as I mentioned, the most commonly used one is the exchange last. So that is you are buying the replacement property first and then selling your relinquished property later um, using those funds. Uh, why first and foremost, uh, you know, reverse exchange might be difficult to complete is uh, as a qualified intermediary, we're not a financial institution. So you have to have the, the exchanger has to have either bring in outside money or secure lending to purchase uh, that replacement property first. Um, and, and in most cases as, a, as average uh, real estate owners are the ones doing 1031 exchanges, maybe they, they are, are holding some debt on that relinquished property that needs to be paid off uh, with the sale. So they're unable to secure another um, mortgage or financing to purchase that replacement property, or they don't have that outside debt. 
Out on top of that, um, because of the complications that are involved with the 1031 exchange, they tend to be a lot more pricier than your average forward, forward exchange. Um, and then ways to avoid a reverse exchange could be if you are contracted for uh, the real estate sale, you could um, you know, put in extra earnest money to delay the closing. Um, you could uh, try to negotiate with the seller to let them know you are looking to complete a 1031 exchange and need to um, align some dates, whether it be a simultaneous close or, or a couple of days after the replacement property, whichever, uh, however you want to negotiate it. Um, but there are cases where you know this is advantageous to clients uh, and we do facilitate them pretty frequently. And especially with this change in uh, uh, potential uh, upcoming change in a real estate market from uh, a seller's market to a buyer's market, uh, as a qualifying community, we see that uh, an uptick in reverse exchanges is uh, starting to be more uh, coming in the next few months. And so what does that visually look like? And so we incorporated, um, if, the if the client didn't have um, funds to purchase the replacement property. So we included the lender here for our example in completing the 1031 exchange. So uh, the accommodator or the, e the exchange accommodation uh, would, would get an accommodation agreement with the exchanger. Um, the, the lender would just uh, assign the, the, the funds to, to that EAT, which would be a single member LLC that the client would set up that the sole member of the LLC will be the accommodator. So this again, so it's a the qualified intermediate or the ETH that they have set up will take title throughout this transaction until the, the exchanger is able to sell their relinquished property and we distribute the property title back uh, to the exchanger. So the, uh, the cash is then provided to the accommodator, the cash is the moves from the accommodator to the seller, the replacement property is taken title, thus starting the reverse exchange transaction. Again, the windows of the timeline are still the same 180 days. Um, it's now just in reverse order of looking to complete uh, the exchange transaction. This slide just goes over what I, you know, I briefly touched on, and and the the single member, uh, the how the exchange method last is covered. The the creation of the single member LLC. We usually recommend our clients creating something that is uh, familiar, or they they might be looking to create anyways with the with the ten thirty one exchange. So that way, uh, we can transfer it over at the completion of the transaction. If not, uh, we can always dissolve it uh, at at the end of the transaction afterwards for the client. And so the step two in the completion of the reverse exchange, so as I like to call this the wheel, almost the wheel of fortune or the, or the wheel uh, of completing a 1031 exchange. So now, as I as promised, there is always that forward component of a 1031 exchange. And whether this happens simultaneously or there's a, a bit of a delay with a disbursement of the funds, the exchanger would engage the qualifying intermediary. Again, it's still the same company, but just different entities facilitating the transaction. Um, the exchange will take a uh, will will engage them with an exchange agreement, take assignment of the sales contract. So the exchanger will disperse the relinquished property to the buyer. Those funds would go into that third party escrow account that we set up for the client. If it's simultaneously, it'll almost be a passable entity to the accommodator. So again, the single member LLC that's holding title uh, for of the replacement property will take those cash to pay off any lending that was uh, used to purchase uh, the replacement property. And once all that's complete. We will disperse the replacement property to the exchanger, thus completing uh, the reverse 1031 exchange. As you can see, there's a lot more moving parts involved with a 1031 uh, reverse 1031 exchange, but it does become uh, it does pique the interest of a lot of uh, of our clients because you know it does eliminate potential the potential stress of that those first 45 days of finding a suitable replacement property. Just quickly going over here, there's another way, uh, a, a built-to-suit exchange or construction exchange uh, is similar to a, uh, 
a reverse exchange in the aspect that the qualified intermediary would take title of the ultimate purchased replacement property uh, in a case where there is a forward exchange and they would be using proceeds to either uh, do some development or build up uh, on an exchange. So there is the, it's a combination, again, of a forward and reverse exchange. Um, but uh, I guess the, the most important thing to note here is that you can use 1031 exchange proceeds to do some development or improvements on a real estate asset. The only thing that uh, can't be done, it cannot be used on a property that you already have title to. It has to be a completely um, new asset that you're looking to develop on. And so just rounding out the, you know, the presentation here, just some of the best practices that JTC America is compared to some other qualified intermediaries that we've put into place. Again, we're able to facilitate all different types of 1031 exchange, forward versus build to suit exchanges. Um, we do uh, comply with federal tax regulations, how we protect uh, our clients' exchange funds, FDIC insurance, qualified exchange accounts at, at uh, highly ranked custodial banks. Uh, we do have our processes and audited uh, every every single year, so we're compliant with SOC one, SOC two certification. Um, being a tech, uh, a technology, like I like to say, we're a technology company with a financial services background. So we provide the industry's best uh, tra transparency when it comes into the 1031 exchange transaction through our purpose-built uh, e-stack exchange maker portal, where the client can log into and track. Uh, any money movement going out of the, the, the exchange account that we set up to them, any associated documents and communicating with their exchange experts uh, with 24-7 online access. Um, and so, Jimmy, uh, I've reached our quiz portion of or Q&A session of the presentation. I'll hand it back over to you and look forward to those questions. I saw there's a, a good amount that came in the chat. Perfect. Well, thanks, Justin. That was awesome. Uh, really detailed, uh, really thorough presentation. Really appreciate your time today. Uh, yeah, we switched things up. We're not doing a quiz. We're doing a uh, live Q&A instead. Uh, we've got about 10 minutes until the top of the hour. Uh, we might go over that, uh, but if anybody has to drop off at the top of the hour, I won't hold it against you. But let's dive into the questions here. We've got several great questions. And if you have a question, uh, please do use the Q&A tool in our Zoom toolbar. I'm not sure we're going to get to all of them, but we'll get to as many as we can. Stephanie asks, when must we pay the taxes? So when, when does the tax bill actually come due, Justin? So it comes due when it's it's realized uh, with the police, uh, the completion of the transaction. So it'd be in doing your an upcoming tax year. So whether you, so, if you don't do a ten thirty one exchange and you sell and take the proceeds, that's technically when the tax bill would be due in your tax year. Otherwise, there are some other tax deferral methods, whether it not be a ten thirty one exchange or an opportunity zone. So you do have that one hundred eighty day window if you do decide to go into the opportunity zones. Otherwise, uh, it would be assessed at the completion of the sale. Excellent. And do within your, and do within your that the the tax paying year uh, of when the transaction was completed. Excellent. Uh, Kay asks, does a ten thirty one also delay recaptured depreciation? So uh, it does. So it uh, it doesn't delay recaptured depreciation because you are doing that throughout the the ownership of the of the, pre, uh, of the the real estate asset, but there is no. Um, so there is the depreciation recapture tax, uh, but it is deferred. So there's no gain or loss uh, in, in that in, in the, when you are doing a 1031 exchange. So you, you could be doing that throughout the ownership of the, the transaction, but when you are, it is just focused on the capital gains tax. Gotcha. Um, Stephanie had a question about, I, it was slide number 10. She asks uh, non-real estate items, question mark. There was, a, there was a point in slide 10, if you want to bring that back up again. Why do a 1031 exchange? You started talking about the different tax amounts. Tax amounts can exceed 20 to 30% real estate. 
40 to 60% non-real estate items. I think she had a question on what you meant by that. Maybe you could clarify yeah, while you me, pull that up. Yeah, let me pull that up. No. Ah, so the non-real estate items. So as as mentioned in the presentation that, you know, personal property. So previously to 2017, before the tax job and cuts that personal uh, um uh, personal property would, could have been used in a 1031 exchange. Now specifically focused on the real estate. So this this goes into like if there was chairs or the HVAC system, people are selling uh, different parts of the real estate transaction that are involved in, in, in some, some of these sales. Those could have been exchangeable. But now uh, post the, 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 the tax code change, and now it specifically just focuses on real estate. So now when you're thinking about doing a 1031 exchange, the point here was just to touch on that when, when you're doing the real estate sales, so you could be facing what well, I think it's now over 30%, so 35% of that will be uh, capital gains tax minus any depreciation minus any depreciation or capture that's been done over the years. Again, consult with your CPA to understand what that your potential tax hit could be. Um, if any if, if, if and if it's even advantageous to do a 1031 exchange based on your tax situation as a QI, we don't have a window into that. But now you're also facing a potential 40 to 60 percent uh, taxes on non-real estate items. So you could be, and then depending on federal and tax state, each state is and is different how this is all applied. Um, so that's why it's always it's just basically to touch on uh, highlight what tax uh, taxes could be coming due your way with this sale and why it might be advantageous to do a 1031 exchange. But ultimately it's mostly to touch on, consult with your CPA um, before you do a real estate sale to really understand what your full picture is. Because a 1031 exchange could be beneficial um, or uh, could be could not be. Right, uh, but just to be clear, non-real estate is no longer eligible for, for 1031s. Ad. And when did that go into effect? The TCJA was signed into law in December of 2017. When, do you know when that went into effect? So I was riding that that twenty eighteen year. So okay. the, the, all the, the the rules went into effect, and so that was um, a big change for the ten thirty one exchange space because uh, artwork, um, major car companies that were leasing real estate assets, or construction companies that were doing all had held all these appreciated assets. So I now cannot no longer do ten thirty one exchange like cars, things like that. Gotcha. Um, so Stephanie had a, a clarification on her question. Uh, she, she meant when are taxes ultimately due if one keeps rolling into another 1031? I, ah. I think the answer is they're not due until uh, they're never due, right? If 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 uh, if if it uh, passes on to your heirs upon death, correct. There's a step up to fair market value, but maybe you can clarify that. No, Jimmy, I, I, you're you're exactly right. It's you know the reason why a lot of people like doing a 1031 exchange. It's it is a great estate planning tool, and the term swap to you drop. Uh, is, is the common practice for that. So you can keep rolling over um, those deferred taxes into either a physical piece of real estate or what's the, why DSTs have become such a, you know, an advantageous investment. It's, you know, it becomes a more passive ownership and it's, you know, it's owned and managed by what these larger commercial real estate companies, but, you know, they just keep rolling it over until uh, they pass away and then their heirs or their beneficiaries to, to their estate uh, get a step up in basis. And then those, those taxes don't become due. It only become due at the time you no longer decide to do a 1031 exchange uh, or, or, or potential, I guess, ownership uh, change of the of the real estate asset itself. That could be a taxable event as well. Yep. Uh, Tuan has a couple of related questions here about um, the 45-day period. Do the Does the 180-day period include the 45-day identification period? And then a related question, what if someone changes their mind and wants to identify 
another property during those 45 days? So two-part question there. Yeah, that was a great question. So the hundred, uh, the, uh, to answer the first part, the first, uh, the 45 days is included uh, in the 180 days. So you can think about it. Uh, you'll have 45 days to identify and the remaining 135 days to complete the transaction. So for the full 180 days is the, or six months is the 1031 exchange transaction. Um, and then to answer the second question, you can interchange, you can swap out properties as much as you like within those first uh, those first 45 days. It's only up until midnight of the 45th or day 46, whatever is on that list will be set in stone. So, um, and then, you know, working with your qualified intermediary and, uh, you know, your respective real estate professional, you can determine which uh, ways to identify would be, you know, most advantageous to complete the transaction, whether it be the standard rule, uh, the 200% rule or the 95% rule. And again, you know, we're able to help with that. Excellent. Uh, we got this uh, question coming in a couple of times. Um, uh, once from Rick here, do, uh, <laughs> let's see, can you comment on what QI fees typically are charged? Yeah. So I, it, it varies, you know, obviously for depending on, you know, each qualified intermediary, they each have their own respective fees and how, you know, how they charge, um, you know, what I will be seeing from the industry itself, it can range somewhere between a thousand to $2,000, um, and, and, and that's just for a forward exchange, you know, when you're looking into reverse exchange it's sometimes, you know, 10 times more than, than that baseline fee, again, for the, the complexities, the risk of the qualified intermediary holding title of the, of the property throughout, uh, the, the transaction until the, the original property is sold. So you're looking at somewhere between, you know, you know, 10 to 20,000 on the reverse exchange side or built to suit exchange side, but those are usually, uh, you know, industry, probably industry standard of ranges of fees. Gotcha. Uh, so Tim asks a question. I think we already answered it. Um, do the proceeds from selling a business qualify? And if not, are there are there alternatives that he may want to look at? Alternative tax advantage programs that you know of? No. And, and so uh, I did touch on that. Uh, so businesses won't. So oftentimes we do get a business, and it does coincide with you know a real estate sale. So the business sale itself would not be 1031 exchangeable. But if there is a real estate component, they can then take those proceeds from the sale and put it into a 1031 exchange. Now there are other there are other tax deferred vehicles like an opportunity zones, but they could could take those capital gains uh, and roll them into that, that type of investment. But that's a a whole other probably uh, webinar that we could do on, on those types of investments. Yeah, I was hoping you'd say opportunity zones because I love opportunity zones. Um, if you have uh, and more questions on opportunity zones, we also run a website called Opportunity DB. I'm the founder of that site as well, related to AltsDB, but we cover just opportunity zones there at opportunitydb.com. Uh, well, we are just about at the top of the hour. Justin, if you want to hang around, see if we can get to some more of these questions. I hope hopefully you have some more time. We can go a yeah. little bit over. Um, but uh, let's see, before we get to the next question, if anybody does have to hop off, I want to make sure that they get this information that I'm going to share on my screen right now, which is, um, well, first of all, thank you for joining us today. Um, we do have a resource page for advisors. You can get Justin's presentation deck that's been uploaded there. You can download that from there. We'll have the replay of this webinar available on this webpage um, by tomorrow as well. And you can also download some of our free guides, including the investor's guide to alternative investments. We also have an investor's guide to DSTs on there as well, which is very relevant to today's topic. Um, you can either scan that QR code or you can type in that URL, altsdb.com advisors to get access to more of our resources. 
But let's uh, continue along with uh, the questions we have here because we do have several more good ones. Uh, let's bring this back up. Here we go. Um, Scott asks, Justin, can you comment on DSTs as part of a 1031 exchange? What are some of the pros and cons? Um, so as I, as I alluded to, um, the nice part is you don't have to go uh, all in a DST or all in a physical piece of real estate. So completing a 1031 exchange, you could diversify your portfolio that way. Um, pros and cons of a, uh, of a DST investment. Um, well, one, it is passive. Um, so, you know, you're, you are moving from a direct management of a physical piece of real estate. So having to deal with, um, you know, trash tenants uh, and things like that. Um, uh, one of the potential cons could be um, it's not really in a liquid investment. So a DST, when you are investing in it, is meant to be you are going to be there for the full length uh, of the investment, which could, you know, it could range between one and 10 years. Industry standard, we have been seeing, seeing these investments go full cycle somewhere between three and seven years. Uh, but again, that's just depending on how the market's performing. Again, they're managed by these large commercial real estate companies. So, you know, you're generating a, a consistent income on a monthly basis, similarly to what you would be doing on a, a, res a, re a regular real estate investment. Um, but again, it just depends on, you know, ultimately what your financial situation, what your, your ultimate investment goals are you're looking for. Each person, you know, it, it varies and um, something for you to decide when going into a 1031 exchange. Perfect. Uh, Stephanie asks, what if tax rates change? For example, what if they go up between when property one was sold and properties two, three, or four are purchased? Which rate is ultimately used? So, so, so that's a great question. And, and, and as, as discussed in a, you know, in a, it's going to be done when at the, the rate of the time the property is sold, which is why, you know, it's a good potential tax strategy. Um, if, you know, maybe you're selling the property in a time where the, the tax rates are high. And so you're looking, I'll do, I'll invest in another property, maybe a DST investment for a few years. And maybe the change in, um, you know, in the, who's controlling the, the, the country changes it to where it becomes a, a lower tax rate. And so at that point, maybe you'll sell it and, you know, you're, you're okay with paying those taxes then. But, you know, most commonly now, once someone does enter a 1031 exchange, they typically like doing this, like, as the, as the mentioned, the swap until you drop. Uh, but that is what how uh, people do use it as a way of, you know, being as, as a tax strategy on deferring those gains. Uh, but it is a sense to when it is currently sold. Good. Uh, Kay asks a question about brokers commissions and how that affects a 1031 and, and 1031 replacement property values potentially. Uh, the question is, if I sell business property for $1 million, but there is a $100,000 commission to a broker for the sale, do I have to purchase a 1031 replacement property for 1 million or for 900,000? Great question. Um, and so that's, uh, it, it'll always be based on the sales price of the relinquished assets. So um, the thinking of that $1 million uh, is, would be the, the, the threshold number that you're looking to purchase in a replacement property or properties. And, and remember it could be equal to or greater than. Um, so you can buy one or maybe one property at 500,000, another at 550, um, just has to uh, amass that uh, million dollars. No, so minus the closing costs, whatever you have in the proceeds uh, in the qualified exchange account is not that number you want to reinvest. All right. Uh, Deborah asks, for a reverse exchange, how far in advance can it close relative to the completion of sale property? So it's so the, the purchase date will start the... Um, 
we'll start the 180 day timeline. So once the, the initial purchase is made and is now within the whole held title and by the exchange accommodator, um, a single member LLC will start day one of the exchange timeline. So that will start the 180 days. And, and so for the selling property, you'll have 180 days to sell um, the relinquished property, which does, again, give some time to complete the, the exchange transaction. Does eliminate maybe the stress of uh, figuring out where I want to reinvest because you already completed that part. But then depending on how the market's performing, the selling might be the, the most stressful part. But that once once you purchase, that starts the day one. Very good. Uh, question from Tuan again. Uh, the question is at some point, um, let's see. Well, the first part of his question is asking, when does tax get paid? Um, the, we already answered that. But the, the gist of the second part of his question is, what if the uh, title of the property gets changed to a family member? Is there a tax implication there? So it dep uh, depends on when you're changing the titling. So if you're changing the titling prior to entering a 1031 exchange, um, so again, so you know, taxpayer continuity. Um, so now whether, it, you know, maybe they grouped it under an LLC or it's changed just to a family member, specifically a family member, um, that will be the same one that has to do um, the purchasing. So then they can complete, they can complete the exchange under that new, that new title ship as long as it, it is prior uh, to completing a 1031 exchange. So it's after the, um, so if it's the 1031 exchange completed, you know, they've held the property for a year and now they're changing it into a, a new family member. That would be a taxable event since it is not uh, the same taxpayer that's been paying um, the property previously. So again, you would want to consult that. Um, or, or, or as because as, I'm assuming then again, it would be someone who's not related to the ownership of the real estate. Um, again, so for the instance, let's say, you know, it was, you know, husband and wife that purchased the replacement property completely and they want to group it under an LLC. Since they're both members of the, um, the LLC, it's a continuity. Again, taxable event changing title, but not they're not completely different owners of the property. Got it. Um, moving along, another question here from Stephanie. She wants to know, are 1031s allowed for what she terms work, real estate, for instance, farms, vineyards, solar farms, et cetera? Yes. Uh, so uh, again, those, so it's business use in those cases, whether it's, you know, a farm, it's, it's very commonly, and especially um, uh, people do 1031 exchanges with their farmland. So vineyards, again, something that's been held for investment purposes um, or, or, or even uh, solar panels, things like that. So we, we do come into cases where, uh, not solar, solar panels, uh, a, solar, a solar turbine, wind turbines, again, land for health for investment uh, could all be qualified for a 1031 exchange. We do run into cases where uh, mineral rights, so oil rigs, so lands that are, uh, you can go into the direct mineral rights for where these um, oil rigs are held that's the, you can 1031 into and out of those types of investments. So um, work work rights are, are, are definitely something that's 1031 exchangeable. Excellent. Uh, great answer there. That's good news. Uh, Rick wants to know if you can comment on the use of IRA funds for 1031 exchanges. So uh, unfortunately, uh, IRA funds are, are not something that could be uh, used in a 1031 exchange. Now, if you were to take those IRA funds to invest in, let's say, um, in, uh, let's say invest in a DST or into a physical piece of real estate, then down, down the line, you, once that, let's say the DST goes full cycle, then you can do a 1031 exchange, but you couldn't take it. It has to be real estate to real estate, uh, as we did cover uh, in the presentation uh, that for a 1030, to be 1031 exchange qualifiable. 
Okay. Excellent. Uh, let's see. We're way over time now. I think we got, uh, I'll, I'll do one more question here. If, um, if our answers weren't clear or uh, we didn't get to your question, you can reach out to uh, us at info at altsdb.com. And then Justin, your email, I think was justin.amos at jtcgroup.com. Did I get that right? That's correct. Okay, good. Um, I will type in those email addresses into the chat in a moment here while Justin answers our final question of the day, which is from Mark. Mark wants to know, can you also do a 10, I'm sorry, can you also do a 199A as well as a 1031? Um, so there, are, so there are two separate uh, lines of the the IRS tax code. So unfortunately, there are no combining uh, of uh, different way. I guess lineages of the, of the different tax codes. So ten thirty one is specifically uh, for for this uh, in different type of investment. So it's for instance, it's it's like even though opportunity zones is another tax deferral uh, vehicle, is there's no way to com- combine a ten thirty one exchange with an opportunity zone investment. Um, so they are specifically designed for the, their own line of uh, transaction. Yep. Uh, good answer there. I do like to say sometimes that opportunity zones can rescue a failed 1031 exchange, but that's a, a different topic for another day. Um, Justin, thanks so much for uh, being here today. Thanks for your time. Great presentation. Uh, please do email me info at altsdb.com or Justin justin.amos at jtcgroup.com. If you have any other questions that we haven't been able to get to today, I just posted our email addresses in the chat. And uh, finally, please do head to altsdb.com slash advisors to download a copy of today's slides. And we'll have the replay of the webinar up there um, by later today or tomorrow as well. A thank you to all of our participants today. Thank you for JTC Americas for sponsoring today's webinar. Um, I've been Jimmy Atkinson, co-founder of AltsDB with Justin Amos at JTC Group and JTC Americas. Thanks so much, everybody. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 